Hi, I'm Paul Johnson. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Life Support. I turned around and no one was there. And God spoke to me. And the way that God speaks to me is that it's not an audible voice. Um, I just had this overwhelming sense of knowing something that's just happened. And I had this physical sensation of being pushed between the shoulder blades. And God said to me, I'm cleaning you out. That is Rick Loftus, who shared last time about the homicide of his infant son, Calvin, and how that event would send his life into a tailspin. But in that darkest time, he would soon discover God was pursuing him, and it changed his life forever. This is the program Life Support. Everything you do from then on is different. One of the detectives, I think his name was He was Derek. a golden boy. All we can do right now is come Extreme together. Extreme domestic violence, multiple rapes. The purpose of this program is to help others know how to come alongside those who are hurting and suffering. And hosted by Paul Johnson, lead pastor of Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota. Pastor Paul is no stranger to personal tragedy himself, losing his first wife to cancer and then suffering through the homicide of his 21-year-old son, which gives him a unique perspective and empathy for the individuals featured here. Once again, Pastor Paul Johnson. We are so glad to welcome back to Life Support, Rick Loftus, who has for our last couple of times together, shared an amazing story. And Rick, it's so good to have you here. And you've been through so much. You know, we've talked about how you lost your young son, Calvin, to a murder and uh, a shaking incident at a daycare. And you weren't a believer at this point, And you tried to grapple with that. And and so many things came into your life and you apparently were rebuilding your life, but one thing led to another and you got hooked on gambling and drinking and you uh, lost your marriage and you tried to introduce yourself back into your old life, but that didn't work very well. And all of a sudden you were at a place probably you thought you'd never be. And that's at the Salvation Army. And God really got your attention at the Salvation Army, which I think probably is a story a lot of people can tell because of the work they do there. But then as you began to look at yourself after the time that God really spoke to you about where you were and the light went on, you said you became different, but you weren't yet a believer. Correct. So take it from there. What happened next? Um, During the early years of my sobriety, um, I was confident in the concept of God, and it was safe. It wasn't, I didn't have to, I knew that um, there was a God, that he could have control and influence in my life. He had done dramatic things in my life, but I was still more comfortable being the one in control. And so I was given lip service to the full surrender, excuse me, and the, the full concept of being a disciple of any specific name God, the anonymous higher power of AA, was just fine with me. That was as far as I wanted to go. And the same pattern developed. I started to rebuild my life, started to make money, started to pay back a small amount of the amount that I owed these people that I had stolen so much from. Even had the opportunity to um, reunite with my kids because of the mercy and understanding of my ex-wife. Spent a little bit of time doing that and met a woman 
and this is where everybody should be laughing right now. If they're not, they're allowed to. And suddenly my focus, instead of God, instead of my children, instead of rebuilding everything, went on the relationship with this woman. And fast forward a couple of years, so I've lost contact with my kids again. There's nothing going on in that part of it. And I know that the relationship with this woman is unhealthy and that it's not good. And I I knew that I needed to do something because it was a very strong parallel to the gambling and the drinking that I was doing. And through a long series of connected events, a friend of mine had gone to see a hypnotherapist to help her with a lot of different things. And there was a real change in her. And I thought, well, maybe. And I, I knew my work was suffering. My relationships were suffering. I was lying to people. I was covering things up. And I, I was going down the same path. So I thought, what have I got to lose? I'll go see this hypnotherapist. And I thought, even though I was very skeptical and thought it was too heebie-jeebie and new age stuff, and I thought, what have I got to lose? Paid $300 for three sessions, go to meet this wonderful man named Anthony. And he sits down in his office. It's a, it's, it's like a dentist chair and a couple of couches, and we're sitting and talking. And he's asking me all about my family background, child placement, where I am in the middle of the children, a lot of things about me as a child. And he's got a whiteboard up there, and he's drawing all kinds of diagrams. And I'm going, this is unlike any hypnotherapy session I've ever been to. And then he goes, come on, sit down in the chair. So I sat down in the dentist chair. I'm sure it wasn't, but it was a big recliner. He sat next to me, and the hypnosis is better described as being the deepest, most relaxed meditative state I've ever been in in my life. He had me go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And once I got deeper and I'm so relaxed I can barely hear his voice, he takes me even deeper and he zeroed right in on my relationship with my father. And he goes, and he said, describe one of the most loving memories you have of your dad. So I told him about a time when I was in second grade and my dad, who was in and out of my life because he was heavily alcoholic, um, actually had some money that Christmas and he bought me this big toy called Big Bruiser, which is a big um, tow truck that I could actually ride on. And he goes, um, what was it like when your dad gave you that? And he goes, and I told him, I said, I can see my dad's face in the 60s we're in now and his big horn rim glasses and his black crew cut hair and his big blue eyes and he's smiling at me and he, and he, and he said what are you feeling and I said my dad loves me and that in and of itself was a big enough breakthrough because I would have denied that my whole life and I would have told you that I hated my dad that I was never going to be my dad when in fact I was exactly like my dad and so I'm starting to cry like I am right now in this therapist's office. And then all of a sudden something happened in this, this meditation that I'm having. And Anthony describes it as being that suddenly something happened where I started hyperventilating and crying and sobbing. Thought he, he said he thought I was going to break my ribs. And when I finally stopped crying, I was able to describe to Anthony that while my dad, my earthly dad, was looking at me with his big blue eyes and just making me feel how much he loved me, his face dissolved, and the face of Jesus was there. And the love that I felt in that instant, in that heartbeat, I feel any time I want. It just burned into my soul, into my heart, and I have never lost that feeling of intense personal love that Jesus has for me. This will be no surprise that as soon as 
up to this point with the therapist, Anthony, everything had been secular. Everything had been on the up and up. Not a single talk of anything spiritual, even closer to spiritual. Turns out that Anthony is a true believer, and we spent the next hour in his office talking about Jesus. And after we were all done, the next I, I said, well, when's the next one? He goes, Rick, you don't need another session. We're done. I'll <laughs> refund your money if you want to. He said, the only thing I want to know is can I tell people about this experience that I just witnessed you coming to Jesus? And that's why it's so important to me and anybody that I share my story with or anybody that I help, any of the men that I mentor or sponsor, I move them as quickly as I can towards the concept of naming their God about personalizing it so it's not a relationship with woman or boy or brother or anything like that. Yeah, especially in our culture where tolerance is king and there are many ways to God when we know biblically there is only one way to be saved, and that's through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And God used a very unusual way, but a believer, to help you see that and the skills that he had acquired in therapy. So then you walked out of his office and you've had this encounter with Christ what happens next in your life? Well, it's interesting how um, the architect of all this has put it together because uh, in the year leading up to this coming to Jesus, literally, um, the financial and legal consequences of all my gambling caught up with me, and I was going to a series of hearings that resulted in July of 2013 of me going to prison to I was uh, charged with many counts of felony theft by swindle and identity theft and everything else. So I went to prison for almost three years in the state system in Minnesota. Went to four different medium-level security prisons and three different county jails. That's just the way it happened. They moved the housing at different areas. And I got to spend that entire three years becoming very familiar with my Bible um, and spending a lot of time alone with Jesus and with other believers in prison. So it was almost like a, an intense study period for me to really, now that I've gone from the anonymous higher power God, been introduced to his son literally, then I got introduced to his word. And mm-hmm. the love that I feel radiating off of those pages every time I open my Bible, um, it's just incredible. One of the biggest barriers that men have when they're in recovery from addictions and alcoholism is they have, they have just such resistance to the Bible because I think they get it shoved down their throat by a lot of people. So I, I try to let them know just how much it, it, it's a growing living document. It really is a representation of our living God. It's interesting as you look back at those years, God used the Salvation Army as kind of a respite to pull you out of your downward spiral. And then he used prison later on to give you a respite neither place would you say this is my life goal <laughs> no. to be, but God used those places yeah. to help you? We call it um, a T-shirt, that you get a T-shirt. When you've been in prison, you got the prison T-shirt. You're an alcoholic, you got the alcoholic T-shirt. And each time we go through one of these experiences, you get a T-shirt. And unfortunately, or fortunately from Christ's standpoint, there's more than a couple T-shirts in my closet. Because sitting down with men that have been through the same experience, when they realize that you open up your shirt and you've got that T-shirt that you're speaking from experience, it gives you permission to speak to them about what the solution is. And I know that you've been able to use that, too. You're, you're helping with Five Stone Media, which is one of our partners here on Life Support. And 
you've been able to give back to a lot of men. What would you say to a Christian who's been through a lot and isn't quite sure that they have the courage or even a so-called good enough story to help other people? We'll return to this conversation in just a moment, but we want to remind you that you are listening to Life Support, a co-production of Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota, and Five Stone Media. Here is Five Stone Media Executive Director and Co-Founder, Steve Johnson. Thank you, Veronica. Five Stone Media is hosting several upcoming Life Support conferences, providing practical tools and resources for church leaders and staff and featuring survivors, therapists, and pastors. If you are interested, please reach out to us on our website at www.fivestonemedia.com. Well, our guest today and our host share a similar experience in their lives, the tragic, sudden loss of a child. And now let's return to the conversation of hope with Rick Loftus and Pastor Paul Johnson. You've been able to give back to a lot of men. What would you say to a Christian who's been through a lot and isn't quite sure that they have the courage or even a so-called good enough story to help other people? They do. They absolutely do. And mm -hmm. just hearing you say that, I want to say how ridiculous, but I like you too much. I respect you. But it truly is ridiculous because... The I think back to that moment when I went to Doug and asked him for, was reaching out and crying out for help about Calvin's death, to have somebody that could have spoken that I knew had lost a child, I'd go, whoa, I need to listen to this person. And um, there are so many people in addiction recovery and alcoholism recovery that need help, and a voice with experience that comes and sits down with them is very important. What would you wish Christians would have known during your journey? In other words, you talked a lot about isolation. I think isolation is a common thread through trauma of any kind. And you had a, a terrible death of your son, which is just you know outside the bounds of it, what anybody would expect. And then you grappled with that in the wrong ways. You, lost, you had to grieve the loss of your family and your wife and all of this thing. And you talked about being isolated from everyone. To help us church people know what to do. We have somebody sitting like that next to us in church on Sunday. When you say church people, I think that one of the advantages church people have is they're there for the community. Um, they're there for the relationships that are in the pews and the committees and in the, in the activities and the things that you do. When you think about people that go to church, they go to it and they probably have a higher value placed on relationships than a lot of people I believe that the, the, the deepest causal root of addiction and alcoholism is people have never been shown what a healthy relationship is, or if they've been shown, they've never practiced it. And I'm a living, breathing example of that. I grew up as a child alone, you know, lonely within a group, you know, five, other, five siblings, and I grew up lonely. And by slowly moving me towards gaining an appreciation and putting value on relationships to the point where Christ finally reveals himself to me in the beginning of the most intimate relationship I've ever known. It's done nothing but enhance my worldly relationships and put value on relationships with other men. 
And, and men in addiction have almost never had healthy relationships with other men. And now we're asking them to believe in a relationship with this person or thing that they can't see or talk to or feel. How do we in the church community receive men and women, for that matter, that have been through a journey like that in addiction, alcoholism, and so forth? How do we receive them into the body at large? Because it seems that it's difficult sometimes. It's a great question, Paul. It's a great question. First thing I'd do as a pastor is I'd ask my congregation, say, so how many of you out there have a T-shirt that you haven't told us about? Because I'm going to guess that there's a person or two in your pews that may have been to prison, may have been to AA, may have done those things. So you automatically got some T-shirts, and then once you know who your T-shirts are, T-shirts are, and they don't even need to have the T-shirt. It just could be the good-hearted, kind souls that want to help people coming. They'll develop their own passion, whether it's people in alcoholism, people coming out of prison, people in homelessness, people in joblessness or whatever. Uh, because it takes both kinds. You can't have just people with T-shirts to help them out. I am in no way saying that only an alcoholic mm-hmm. can help an alcoholic, but an alcoholic can help an alcoholic in a way that a non-alcoholic can't. Uh, but the alcoholic still needs those people from the church body because at some point we look at the people. I looked at. I finally started looking at the volunteers at the Salvation Army going, why are you here? You're not an alcoholic. I know that I have to do this 12-step work. And then you realize that they're doing great commission work because Jesus asked them to. And they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart. That's a, that's a big aha moment when you realize that. So, so everybody in the church has something to offer this community. And to a pastor that's listening right now, you way back when uh, Calvin uh, was murdered and you sought help and you talked to a well-meaning pastor who gave you probably the only thing you could think of, kind of a trite response. Hey, what would you want a pastor to know about how to help people who are in trauma? I think that the role of a pastor is a pastor who is fallible and doesn't wear a cape and knows how to build a team around them and knows how to ask for help. And I, I grew up thinking that pastors and priests were perfect, that there was nothing. Well, we're pretty close. Yeah, I understand, and I'm certainly not. But, we're, you know, you. we're working on that. <laughs> Take the next step. And, and that um, we all recognize that they're human, too. Mm-hmm. And I think the best skill that a pastor can develop is to become a networker, to, to obsessively and relentlessly network and to find out the people that have got special skills and willingness. I think you guys do that as a rule anyway because there's no way you can do all the things in your church yourself. So if you could start building a team of people that can address those needs, that would be helpful. Would it also be fair to say that just a presence in your life is far more important than words? Yeah, absolutely. In other words, a pastor can be content with saying, you know, I've never encountered this before, but man, I want to walk this journey with you. What would that have meant? Oh, the world. It may have short-circuited my years of trial and tribulation. And and that's what I try to tell the men at the ARC, the, the men that I try to help, is that 
You know, I, I, being a mentor is massively misunderstood. People think that they need to have a background in the number of T-shirts that I do. Oh, you have to have five Navigator books and, yeah, and, and, yeah. and 100 Bible verses memorized for each Saturday, but that's not what it is at all. I ask people, I say, have you ever raised, do you, do you, have you raised teenagers? And they go, yeah. I said, you're ultimately qualified to be a mentor. Mm-hmm. And a mentor is just somebody who verbally and behaviorally demonstrates what a healthy relationship is. And that means showing up and sitting. Sometimes it's just showing up and sitting there and listening. And to have somebody say, hey, I'd like to walk this difficult road with you, mm-hmm. nobody who's been through trauma will say no to that. That, and I also advocate identifying it as trauma because you're going to run into a lot of macho, bullheaded, pig-headed, arrogant guys like me that say, I haven't been traumatized. And the entire world realizes how traumatizing it is to have not only lose a baby, to, but to have a baby murdered. That's yeah, that's that's so good, and I, I find that isolation as well, and I find it difficult to know who to talk to and who not to talk to because to add on to that trauma, just the the rejection of someone would be really difficult to deal with, but that's also a risk a trauma victim needs to take as well is yeah. to step out there and, and you know, maybe somebody isn't going to react properly, but at least you can try and yep. you can get into community and you can try to help people understand. So, One of the best responses I hear from people that don't know what to say is silence. Yeah, and Silence next, is a good thing. And next best answer is, I just don't know what to say, Ruth. Yeah. And I often tell people that um, when my wife was ill with cancer earlier on in my life, um, the best thing people could do is just walk by and they would touch me on the arm and just keep walking. Yeah. It meant, it meant I'm with you. You don't have to explain it. If you want to talk, I'm here. And that meant far more than somebody giving me, you know, a brochure of where to find the best care in Mexico because I wasn't interested in that. Yeah. What do you want to do with the rest of your life? You're, you're, you know, you're coming out of this phase and, and you've got Christ now. And what do you want to give your life to? Um, I have been blessed with... Um, out of my three children, uh, the relationship with my oldest daughter, her husband, and their three kids um, from his previous relationships. But um, that relationship has been restored, reconciled, and that's a wonderful gift. So I want to be a responsible and good father to her and grandfather to the kids. And then I want to spend time doing what Christ would have me do because I know that my choices are not getting me to the place where I need to be. And what I, I call it plumb. Um, hmm. You may know if you're in construction, plumb is the vertical version of horizontal level. And when I'm plumb, um, I can feel, literally feel the power of the Holy Spirit raging through me. It's the most gratifying, energizing, peaceful, restful feeling I've ever known. And when I start to get out of plumb, because I'm not doing the things and, and I don't mean to make this performance-based religion or anything like that. It's just that it's not that I do these things with other men to keep the gift that Christ has given me. I do it because I can't not do it. When you, when you truly have salvation, I believe that it's such a change of your heart that your priorities shift and you can't wait to give to somebody else that's in need. Yeah. And there's such a huge community of men that need it. Well, God took you through so much and but what you have on the other end of it is you have a deep love for christ and you can't replace that thanks rick i appreciate you telling your story thank you it means a lot you know there are so many aspects to this idea of trauma and suffering and trying to 
reintroduce ourselves to who we really are and who Christ is. But there is purpose in suffering, and God never does it because he wants to hurt us. I'm reminded of Romans 5, 3, and 4, where Paul writes, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Your hope in suffering is the power of God and his plan for you, though you may not at all understand it. Suffering produces hope because Jesus has died on the cross and he's calling you to be his child through repentance and through belief. And hope comes through Christ. And I want to encourage you today that if you have not made that decision to hop on a website of a local church or call a pastor, you can certainly check in with my church, Ridwood Church. You can just go on myrwc.org slash life support. You can check out more about our show on MyFaithRadio.com or on Five Stone Media's website as well. Please follow me on Twitter at Pastor Paul J. So good to have you. We'll see you next time on Life Support. Once again, this is Steve Johnson, co-founder and executive director of Five Stone Media, where our mission statement says that we use story to bring hope and healing for those in need of change. And just a quick background note, Five Stone Media was founded in 2007 to tell the story of the remarkably transformed life of former gang leader John Turnipseed. And more information about Five Stone can be found on our website, which is fivestonemedia.com or the Five Stone Media Facebook page. We are so thankful for the brave men and women who share their stories, because maybe it's you that is the person in need of change. Pastor Paul would love to hear from you if that's the case, and you can reach him at the website myrwc.org. That's myrwc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we look forward to bringing you our next story next time on Life Support. Thanks for listening to this Life Support podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make a gift now at myfaithradio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Life Support, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or your podcast player. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and grow the impact of Life Support.